0: You'd think after doing a shift in a hospital as a junior doctor, you might want to put your feet up. I'm not sure Dr. Hazel Wallace's feet ever go up. Away from the wards, she's a qualified nutritionist, personal trainer, and the face of the food medic, serving up healthy living advice and recipes to her half a million plus followers. But how does she reconcile the classic Instagram veneer, toned workouts, delicious dishes, with a reckoning about the perils of social media, especially a sense that healthy eating can tip someone into something more obsessive. And for someone barely 30, where does her drive come from?
1: It's very easy to think that it's a very polished career of someone who very much has their stuff together. And I can guarantee you that's not always the case.
0: In this Brilliant Brains with me, Tim Samuels, Dr. Hazel Wallace. Brilliant Brains is supported by Karmacist, taking taking wellbeing to the next level. Formulated by scientists at Harvard and Stanford, KarmaCist supplements uniquely harness nutrigenomics research, which looks at how the nutrients we eat affect our genes. They've come up with some excellent formulations for mood, immunity, energy, and relaxation, all powered by natural botanicals like saffron, gotu cola, California poppy, and reishi. To get your hands on these, uh, some might say, breakthrough supplements – Head to that's karmacist.com, That's K-A-R-M-A-C-I-S T.com, where you can get 10% off by entering the word brilliant at checkout. Back to Dr. Hazel Wallace. So so let, let's go through this kind of this day where you're feeling a bit out of sorts and what we can do to kind of turn that around. So breakfast. Let's start with breakfast. What do you think the attitude should be that we have to food as we kind of go through our daily menu?
1: Well, when it comes to food, and if we're thinking about what's the best for our health, um, it's very easy to think in black and white terms, kind of have an all or nothing approach. So maybe you have been having a bit of an off week. And it's easy to think, well, you know what, I haven't really eaten very well this week. And, you know, I might as well just keep going because I've just thrown in the towel now. And I think just trying to not have that all or nothing approach and just I guess, moving away from the tendency to associate foods with morality. So what I would say is you need to think about what you actually enjoy eating first and foremost, but then what's also going to make you feel good and help you function at your best. And it's just having that flexibility in and, and I guess without creating rules, having that 80-20 type mindset in your head where you know that actually, if I'm putting all this good food into my body... It's fine, you know, on the weekends, if I do relax a bit, if I do have a drink, if I do maybe have a bit more sugar than what we are recommended to have. And, it, and I think that's something that we don't seem to have anymore in terms of, you know, you open a magazine and it says like, you know, top 10 best foods for X or remove these foods if you want to achieve Y. And that's something I just think that we need or should move away from in, in order to protect not just our, our mental health, but also our physical health.
0: And and there has been a growth in is it called orthorexia where it's sort of healthy eating almost as a food disorder?
1: Yeah, that's it. That's it. Absolutely. It's a, it's a relatively new term. It's not like anorexia in that like you can physically have no weight loss, or you may have a very healthy BMI, or you may have a high BMI, and you're not necessarily restricting food or doing excessive exercise. But you have this unhealthy obsession with eating healthy. And it's probably a lot more prevalent than we know because it's not typically easy to diagnose. And I have to say, I don't think that maybe all doctors are going to be very much clued up on it. But it's something that we're seeing more and more. And especially, you know, in the era of social media, where everyone's sharing what they eat, it's very easy to kind of think, well, if I'm not eating in that certain way, you know, I'm not per se healthy or clean or whatever the newest trend is.
0: I mean, do, do you think maybe as a doctor, you should advise your patients that at least once a week, they should have a big dirty pudding, mm-hmm. just, just to stop, just to, just to kind of stop everyone becoming too obsessed with everything has to be good and clean?
1: I don't think either way is right, because if, if I'm telling them that, then I'm still putting the cake on a pedestal. But I guess what I tend to do when focusing with someone on an individual basis, it's focusing more on what we can put in rather than what we should take out. And I think naturally, if you encourage people to start including more things, whether it's fruits and vegetables, getting more fiber in, drinking more water, opting for maybe whole grains over um, like white bread and things like that you naturally increase all of that food in your diet and it, it almost displaces the cravings for maybe really high energy foods that just get you through. And I think it's you've got to look at so many different things. You have to look at your environment, but also I think, yeah, it's we need to be careful about the language that we're using around food.
0: Were you a healthy eater as a kid? I mean, I guess when I grew up a lot of these principles just weren't even known you've sort of had a vague sense that brown bread was better than white and you should have some veg and that was sort of about as far as it went
1: I would love to say that I was a really healthy child um and to be honest when my mum was cooking it would be there was always you know vegetables on the table definitely potatoes and some form of meat or fish but I think if I had my own way it was naturally going towards sweets and things like that i'm lucky in that i did grow up in ireland where we had access to going to pick our own potatoes and strawberries and things like that and i think because we were very much around fruits and vegetables it wasn't unusual to have it as part of a meal and so i think if you're exposed to that at an early age you develop a palate very early on as well but like i said if you forced my hand and i had a choice Probably would sideline the potatoes for chips
0: or something. For someone who is, you know, still of a, a, a tender age, you've done you've done so much, and you've got so many different strings to your bow, and you know, become in modern speak, quite a brand already. If I could sort of dip my toe into kind of psycho babble, the loss of a parent as a kid, I think, and as someone who went through this myself, it, it seems to be associated with. You have an early awareness of mortality and you're in a real hurry to get on with things. And you, you lost your dad as a teenager. I wonder whether, as I heard Chris Evans once describe, it was someone firing a starting gun and you were just in a kind of hurry to get on with things afterwards.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I've never really thought about it that way. But now that you said it and reflecting on it, I think that's true. I definitely remember being extremely preoccupied with death after I lost my dad. and. He was in business, and so that was where I guess my parents thought I was heading. And so all my, all my subjects in school at the time were business oriented. But after losing him, I quickly changed everything to science in order to study medicine. And I guess, yeah, since once I got into medicine, I was reflecting on things like why my dad died and he had a stroke, a stroke at our dinner table. And so obviously, stroke and heart disease um, are largely related to our lifestyle. And that includes nutrition and exercise and stress. And um, of course, we were learning about all of this at medical school, but we were focusing more on, I guess, the, the diagnosis and treatment side of things versus what we could do in terms of prevention. And I became really obsessed with that and how maybe things could have been prevented in my scenario, in my dad's scenario. And that was really why I started the brand, The Food Medic. Really, really early on, 2011 now, so it's going almost nine years, and it was more to explore that. And as time went on, kind of prevention and lifestyle medicine became something that I was just really fascinated by and wanted to raise more awareness and really fight for it to be an area that was taught at medical schools and something that medical students were more aware of and something that was at the forefront of more doctors' minds. Because don't get me wrong, you know, I work in acute medicine, I work in, in A&E type settings where someone comes in and they're acutely unwell, and you're not in those situations. You're not thinking about whether they're, you know, meeting their five a day or exercising enough. But saying that in other settings, whether it's in a general practice or if you're seeing a patient and they're coming back to your outpatient setting, there's such key situations where you can sit a patient down and maybe, you know, if if it's coming from a doctor, they're likely to listen to it. So whether you can give them maybe three pieces of advice that can help improve their risk factors, so encouraging them to get out and walk a bit more or encouraging them to get some oats into their diet or you know reducing their alcohol consumption just those things and obviously that's a you know it's a tricky situation when you've got a limited you know eight minute ten minute window with a patient but in an ideal world we'd have a bit more time or we have you know could put our hand to some resources to help that patient
0: and you know having rudely delved into your psyche I, I guess you, you're sort of through that advice you, you're, you're trying to avert other people going through what you went through as a kid
1: yeah absolutely because of course we're living longer and longer but that's because of how wonderful medicine is and and technology I just don't think that we're living healthier <laughs> and I guess I want to see more people live long healthier lives and not just longer lives that are you know full of comorbidities and hospital visits and immobility and unable to enjoy the life they've been given
0: and in terms of i guess food as medicine which has become a sort of i'd say fashionable or whether it's just a kind of increased understanding what's the i I guess we can sort of look at the mental and physical though they're both kind of interlinked but i guess on that sort of mental level if you're having one of those you know as i said unmotivated patches how do you sense or what's the evidence that food the right foods nutrients can start to to impact your your mood
1: yeah um i think the food and medicine um message is is really interesting um, and my perception of what it is has evolved over the years especially now that i'm dual qualified as a doctor and a nutritionist and i think what I always need to be clear on is that it's not one or the other, and it's kind of an adjunct to each other um because while food and nutrition is massively important in our overall health and it can help with prevention and even management of certain conditions doesn't replace mainstream or conventional medicine in a lot of settings. but when it comes to i guess food and mood and looking at the evidence. The evidence is is relatively new, um, but there's a lot of really, really interesting research emerging and that probably the most interesting come from Australia. And there is a there was a trial that came out in 2017 called the SMILES trial, which is one of my favourite names of, of any trial, and it's why I remember it. And it, essentially what they did is they recruited a group of people with a diagnosis of major depression And they were allocated into two different groups. One was allocated into a group um, that had a dietary intervention, which was a modified Mediterranean diet. And so Mediterranean diet, things like lots of fruits and vegetables, oily fish, olive oil, not so much meat and sugar, um, lots of fiber, that kind of diet. And the other group was allocated to like a befriending group. So they met with someone every week to talk about um, their feelings and things like that and this was over 12 weeks and at the end of the 12 weeks they found that those in the dietary group so those who are following the modified Mediterranean diet had a reduced reduction um, in depression of 32% and then in the social group they had I think it was 8% and so that doesn't say that food is going to cure depression but I think it's it's fascinating from because of the structure of the trial and because that was the only intervention that was done. And so that's something that we actually don't really uh, include in, in guidelines or in advice when when we are treating depression. And while every doctor's management is going to be individual, it's not something that's kind of mainstream or in the guidance. But actually, when you think about it, is it going to cause any harm? Probably not. And will it cause any benefits? Maybe um, at the best, you know, in the best case scenario, it will. So why don't we just try it? And I guess that that's kind of where I sit with everything.
0: And and in terms of the the foods that you might seem to suggest that they can em- enhance your mood, it's as you were saying, what's up? Plant, vegetable, based, classic Mediterranean, oily fish.
1: Yeah. So it, not really any particular individual food, but. Things like, we know that fiber in particular has a really uh, close link with mood and mood disorders and, and diet. And the reason we think this is why is because in our gut, we have um, a two-way system between our gut and our brain. And it's, I mean, I'm sure lots of people have heard about it. It's the Brit brain access and it works two ways and so the best way the best analogy I have to describe this to people is when you're really nervous for something or you're excited for something you get butterflies in your tummy and that's essentially your gut and your brain speaking to one another but it goes both ways so what you put into your gut also can feed back to your brain and that's typically via this whole uh, environment of microorganisms or bacteria in the gut and that seem to thrive off high fiber foods. Um, And they produce a whole host of chemicals and neurotransmitters that can feed up to the brain. And so we think by supporting um, our diet, we can support our mood via this interaction. And so, yeah, it's high fiber foods. Where do you find fiber? You find fiber essentially in any plant-based food, so fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, legumes, and getting as much of that in there as well. Oily fish and and healthy fats from olive oil and nuts and seeds are also really important because there's a lot of fat that surrounds our nervous system, our nerves and our brain. And so by supporting our diet with those good fats, we can help support um, and protect our nervous system as well. But it's never, you know, one food. And I always caution people when they do open up articles that say, you know, blueberries prevent dementia yes there's loads of benefits in eating blueberries but to say one food will cure x is is too reductionist
0: it's drilled into us i guess the importance of exercise but if you were to kind of give some sort of evidential motivation for uh, exercising as a means to kind of shake off that sort of mental fog what what would you say
1: I mean, the evidence for exercise and the benefits it has is just extraordinary. There's like a very famous quote, which is if exercise could be purchased in a pill, it would be the single most invaluable medicine. And essentially what we mean by that is that, you know, it doesn't just improve, say, cardiovascular fitness, which is probably what comes to mind for everyone aware. It makes you stronger. Yes, we know that's good for you. Um, But we also know that it reduces your risk of depression. Um, reduces your risk of dementia, reduces your risk of things like breast cancer and colon cancer, reduces your risk of osteoporosis, uh, heart disease, uh, type two diabetes. I think there's about 22 conditions I can reel off where we have direct evidence for the, the link between regular physical activity. And the key there, the key word there is regular because it's no good doing it once every Blue moon and it's no good going through phases where you're doing it all the time and then not doing it. It's keeping it regular and trying to do daily movement. Very different for different people. There's not one right way of exercising. It might be running for some some people it might be dancing for others. Cycling even gardening counts. So there's lots of ways that we can stay active. Um, but it's just making sure we do a little bit every day.
0: I mean, it, you know, it's said that sitting is the new smoking. Is is that is that a valid comparison?
1: Probably not, but it's also kind of, I guess, the biggest issue that we're facing maybe now, or I guess from a public health point of view, less people are smoking and more people are aware of the health effects of smoking, whereas less people are aware of the health effects of sitting. And the thing that's really interesting about sitting is that it's a risk factor for all of these health problems like heart disease and type 2 diabetes, independent Of physical activity and what I mean by that is you can meet your 30 minutes of physical activity a day so you could go for a run for 30 minutes but if you sit down all day you still have risk factors for these conditions and you know there's been studies to look at well how much exercise do you have to do to offset the risk of sitting and you have to do quite a bit so about an hour of moderate exercise a day and that's not really practical for most people. So to reduce your risk, it's just thinking about breaking up your sitting time. But that doesn't mean that you have to go for you know a walk every 30 minutes. It can be as simple as getting up and getting yourself a glass of water, setting yourself a timer, taking a, uh, one of your business calls um, on the phone and walking with it, You know, taking meetings outside or in situations where you're not just all sitting down. It's just getting up and moving as much as you can throughout the day.
0: So assuming we haven't had a um, sedentary-based coronary uh, and we get okay. through to the afternoon and you get that kind of afternoon sort of pang of hunger kick in, I guess there's a school of thought which says it's good to be hungry and that's what your body needs and intermittent fasting's good. But if you are feeling peckish, what would a, a snack of choice be?
1: Typically, when I'm at work, it will be something like a banana because it's less likely to get contaminated anywhere. But usually that's just something that will see me through to the end of the day. I don't have the mindset that you should, if you're hungry, you should not eat. I think if you're hungry, that's a signal that you should have some food. Uh, Especially for women, fasting doesn't tend to go all that well. It can mess with your hormones and things like that. So I do think that having regular snacks isn't something that we need to completely forego. I guess if you're snacking all day, then that can... You can run into issues, but having a snack in the afternoon isn't an issue. So something like a banana or a handful of nuts, um, sometimes rice cakes and peanut butter. If I'm at home, try to avoid caffeine at that time because even for people who think that they aren't affected by caffeine later in the day, it does have quite a long time to wear off. So you know, up to six to ten hours. And when you think about that, if you're having a coffee at you know four four p.m., it's going to be wearing off later in the night. It might. You might fall asleep straight away, but actually, the quality of your sleep will be impaired. So, thinking about those kind of things when you are having an afternoon slump. But sometimes, it also means that you just need to get outside, get some fresh air, or move away from your desk as well. So, always try that, um, especially if you have the freedom to do so.
0: And if and if you feel the temptation at that point to go on social media, and you know you have you have a big following on social media. When you've come off it, do you think you, it's, you're going to feel better about yourself and life in the universe?
1: Probably not, If especially if I'm at work and I'm you know working away and see that so-and-so's on holidays and <laughs> X, Y, and Z has happened. Obviously, I use social media for my job, but I think as positive as it can be, it can also be equally negative. And that's something I've just become trying to change my relationship with social media so that I'm not just using it out of habit, um, but using it more with purpose. And actually, last month, I took an entire month offline so that I could kind of break that bad habit cycle of just going on and mindlessly going into like a whirlpool of social media.
0: Do you feel, I guess, a pressure to maintain the image that you put out there? You know, I guess it's such a sort of misleading way to judge someone but you know to look at your social media feed you know you looking great and you're eating great and it's full of positivity do you feel a sense of having to live up to that or project that
1: i guess maybe maybe i did at one point but less so now and that might be out of doing it for a long time i also try to be as transparent as I can be on social media and it's absolutely filtered in that you are seeing you know beautifully photographed images and things like that and curated captions and infographics that take a lot of time to put together and so yes it, there's an element that's curated and not real but I think what I never want to do is create like this alternative persona that I will never be, because I think then I'll be just kind of living these two separate lives. I think one of my biggest rules on social media is to not share too much of my private life. I think some people can overshare. And yeah, if I just remember the purpose of of my social media, which is first and foremost, really educational and less about me and more about the information that I'm trying to put out, then I don't really get that attached or bogged down to it.
0: And are you aware that there are people who are going to be on social media who think, oh, I want to be like Hazel Wallace, look at her, she's got everything. And that people might be trying to live up to the image of you, if not actually you.
1: Yeah, there there will be people in, in that situation because, you know, I've had messages from, from young women who will say things like that, or young medical students who are, you know, interested in following a similar path. And it's, I guess, my message to, to people who do you think that or think that about anyone else is that social media is going to kind of show you the best parts of their life like you don't see the grueling hours of of work that goes in behind the scenes or the hours of study to get to where I am or you know I'm not sharing a whole 13-hour shift on the wards and the fact that we just had to resuscitate someone it's it's those bits that people don't see that I'm never going to share But I think it's very easy to think that it's a very polished career of someone who very much has their stuff together, and I can guarantee you that's not always the case.
0: Uh, Dr. Hazel Wallace, we're going to end with some quickfire questions. Who is your brilliant brain? Who's the person you perhaps look up to? Who's inspired you most?
1: Oh, I don't know. Um, I guess the person who who's inspired me academically has been. My dad, but I guess in more recent years, less so academically, but I'm a big fan of Brené Brown, more from a life kind of inspiration. I just think she's got some incredible, she's done some incredible work academically as well. Um, and her podcasts and her books, she's an inspiring woman.
0: That's great. And, and uh, Hazel, I'm going to make you a dictator. Your mission is to make the nation, the world, healthier and happier. What are you going to bring into place that uh, people have to do?
1: Maybe uh, like technology curfews so that we're not spending all our time online, even if it's a social media curfew or dedicated social media free days.
0: Sounds good to me. What what time is the curfew going to come in at night?
1: Maybe 9 to 7 a.m. Because if it's social media, then it's nothing urgent. And so I reckon 9 p.m. to 7 a.m.
0: Excellent. (laughs) Um, I think you're going to be a good dictator. Um, you could probably you could probably um, squeeze that in. You could be the food dictator as well. <laughs> uh, Dr. Hazel Wallace, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks to Dr. Hazel Wallace. To hear all twelve episodes of Brilliant Brains, including Robin Sharma, the monk who sold his Ferrari, author, explain why getting up at five AM can apparently revolutionise your life go to karmacist.com slash podcast that's the show's sponsor thanks also to nature boy for the music and producer tess davidson from me tim samuels that's this episode of brilliant brains